It is a great product. So thank you to Livestream. Today's show, we're talking about uh, AI in healthcare, and we have an amazing group of people joining us. And let's begin with Sherry Longamock, who is with Medscape. Sherry. Hi, um, nice to be here. I'm very looking forward to the discussion. Um, just a few words about myself. Um, I work for the German edition of, of Medscape. I'm based here in Berlin. That's why uh, it's my maybe a bit darker in here. Um, I, I basically very involved in the digital health scene here in, in Europe. I advise a couple of startups and investors here in Berlin. And yeah, digital health is uh, and especially AI is my um, my passion. <laughs> Fantastic, Sherry. And next, in no particular order, I'm I'm choosing in the order in which they're displayed on my screen is uh, David Bray, who has been on CXO Talk a number of times and is the Chief Information Officer of the FCC. David Bray, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Michael. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be here. I have to admit, while in my current capacity, I don't do healthcare. Uh, coming from the Centers for Disease Control in the past and being involved with the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program, I'm very interested as to how we can make improvements as to how do we respond to disruptive health events, both locally as well as globally. David Bray, thanks a lot. And uh, last but not least is Daniel Kraft, who is doing too many things that I, too many to, to count. And uh, Daniel Kraft, why don't you tell us about yourself? Thanks. Um, I'm a physician scientist by background, trained in internal medicine, pediatrics, rheumatology, oncology, um, and uh, in my sort of academic role now, chairing medicine at Singularity University, where we look at where our technology is heading, fast moving or exponential ones, and the ability to leverage those to impact challenges from education, environment, to healthcare, and beyond. And I founded a program out of Singularity University in 2011 called Exponential Medicine, where we look at how we might leverage things like artificial intelligence to low-cost genomics to drones uh, uh, to uh, big data in reshaping and reinventing health and medicine across the spectrum. Fantastic. Uh, so, Sherry, you uh, gave a talk not too long ago in which you described some of the key disruptions having to do with data and other things relating to healthcare. So as an overview, do you want to maybe just uh, share share some of those thoughts with us? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So um, we're progressing so much in healthcare right now worldwide. I mean, we're collecting lots and lots of data, more and more data, not only due to studies that are conducted worldwide, but also due to on our mobile phones. So everybody's using uh, health app, we, we get a lot of information um, from that. And with the help of this data, we will be finally be able to treat diseases in a much better way. So we speak about the, of the era of precision medicine. So a patient is not, um, is not um, only a disease or a symptom anymore, but he's a person with many different factors we can take into account for his own treatment that can be the genome, his own genome or a tumor genome, even his microbiome or his treatment preferences. So with the, um, with the collection of all these data we, we have right now, we are finally able to find the right treatment for each and every patient. But of course, um, 
and this is one of the topics we probably dive a bit deeper into today, um, it's very, very hard to take all these different factors into account because for a physician to keep up with the speed of information, with the speed of knowledge is very, very, very hard. So we need some sort of um, algorithms, some sort of machine learning to conduct and to help us to support our decisions. Uh, Daniel, what about this notion of algorithms and machine learning? Well, as Sherry mentioned, you know, we're in this exponential age. We want to get to true precision, personalized medicine, and give the right drug, the right therapy, the right prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. Uh, the challenge is it's really hard to connect all those dots right now. And any physician, uh, pharma person, anybody who's trying to make sense of all this data, our brains are challenged. Our brains haven't had an upgrade in uh, at least a million or two years, but our wearables, our devices, our ability to compute is changing at an exponential rate. So the challenge now for, let's say, a clinician is to integrate someone's digital exhaust from the wearable devices. I'm wearing three, um, we think's watch, an Apple watch, uh, an Aura ring, uh, to integrate omics, to integrate the latest guidelines and publications. Um, the average physician, at least in the United States, only reads uh, journals three or four hours a, a month. And there's no way, again, to integrate uh, into practice all that information. So what we need machine learning, AI, big data, is to synthesize some of that to bring the right um, diagnostics, therapy for that patient at that point of care. Um, and that's sort of the promise, I think, of AI, machine learning, and big data uh, as we're now in an era where a lot of it's becoming available, but how to make it actually useful and provide better outcomes at lower costs is still a huge challenge. And David Bray, uh, what about uh, the the policy implications and the sort of uh, the intersection of healthcare, AI, and what do we do about all of this? So wearing on my chief information officer hat, what I love that both Shari and Daniel are saying is it really is about how we can use AI to almost do augmented intelligence for both the physician as well as the patient. Uh, because as I said, we're in an era of exponential data uh, in terms of new therapies, but also everything that's possible about that could determine your health outcomes. And so policy-wise, I think we need to think about for the patient, how can we think about providing choices so that they actually have informed choices about both what they want to know and what they want to have done with their data. And some of us may want to have our data more shared because maybe it means better health outcomes, but others, we may not want to know everything because we're not ready for that sort of peering into the future and knowing maybe 15 years from now based on our genomics, we may have this complication in our health. And that needs to be an informed choice. Um, obviously, I'm not a physician. Uh, I am a CIO. I do think we need to think about how do we address the data? How do we address the sensors that are collecting it? And then finally, how do we make sure that you have a locus of control as to what's done with your data and what algorithms are run against it with your permission and which ones aren't? And I think that's very key. Uh, Shari and Daniel, you are both physicians. And uh, what, what about the impact on medicine and the, the role of the physician and how can physicians make use of this data and where are we in the process of uh, having this data and then being able to use it in machine learning and AI? And can you give us practical examples? I'm throwing a lot at you all at once. I'll start. I think you start with the question only about algorithms, which may be a bit different than sort of AI. A lot of healthcare is, you know, in terms of what we do as physicians, is 
look at a patient, they're complaining of pain when they pee. And so we check their urine. Is it positive for nitrates and bacteria? Well, then they have a urinary tract infection. That doesn't take uh, going to medical school to, to, to learn. Um, a lot of basic common healthcare issues um, can be uh, triaged, at least partially diagnosed with pretty straightforward um, decision tree charts. And they're now uh, not an explosion, but several examples of, you know, chat bots or, you know, simple, um, you know, early AI where it can ask you about your symptoms and can tell you, is that belly pain likely to be attendocitis or uh, just indigestion? So I think there's sort of the simple side of algorithms, which should many cases where there's not a lot of medical care, many parts of the world don't have access to physicians or it's expensive to reach them. Uh, we can do a lot with simple uh, through your SMS or even our smartphones provide uh, algorithmic based, uh, especially triage uh, and, and health education. And then we get farther up the spectrum when I'm seeing a patient with a urinary tract infection, um, instead of just maybe giving them the standard antibiotic, maybe we'll have other information about their renal function, uh, their BMI, what dose we might want to give based on their pharmacogenetics from a 23andMe type profile or their full genome, which is now coming down to a thousand or maybe even a hundred dollars this year. Uh, so we can go from simple, simple algorithms, pick, pick up the, uh, uh, the urinary tract infection with an algorithm, maybe even call in the prescription by, by a bot and deliver by drone, but then maybe get much more personalized to really pick the most appropriate antibiotic that's the safest that will give us the, the best outcome based on that individual, the best information from the CDC, all available at the right time and the right uh, place, uh, and do that in a very uh, functional and low-cost manner. That's just one small example. Um, I might add to the role of the physician. I think it will change significantly uh, in the next years already. So every time I'm at a um, medical conference speaking, um, they the physicians are actually afraid that they would be replaced. But I highly doubt that this will be the case, um, at least in, in midterm. Um, it's it's rather an, a tool for the physician to help him to make better decisions. They they won't be replaced. We know from very recent studies that um, while AI in some cases is better at, the, at diagnosing, uh, for example, a rare disease in, in certain cases than the physician, um, the best um, outcome we have when physician and AI work together. So you can think about it like um, you check or you type in the symptoms, you type in, you check with the genome, some sort of that, the basic lab parameters, and then you get a recommendation or from, from AI, and then still the physician needs to check if that's really the case and if you trust this recommendation. I think this quality check it's very, very crucial, and we won't get rid of it in the in the next years, for sure. And I actually have a question for both Daniel and Shari, and and that for for Daniel, my question is: Do you find that you feel like you have a locus of control over the data that's being collected from the different sensors you're wearing? And then for Shari, I guess the question is: As a physician, what would be the best way for algorithms and or an AI to present new information or novel information to you in a, in a path that you could actually absorb and actually integrate into your practice of care? So I'll start. I mean, great question. I think today uh, clinicians are still overwhelmed by having to spend half their time typing electronic medical record notes, double the time they have FaceTime with their patients. Um, the flow of data from wearables or omics, et cetera, is not really integrated into the workflows of most clinicians, at least in the United States. Um, and we're just starting to enter this era uh, from very intermittent data and being very reactive. 
you know, waiting for disease to happen, having broken feedback loops from blood pressure to blood sugar, to be much more continuous with our data and then much more proactive as individuals, as, as physicians, et cetera. Um, so, you know, right now there's, you know, all these consumer devices. I was just at a consumer electronics show two weeks ago. There's even more from tracking mothers and pregnant women and the baby in, in utero all the way to tracking the sunlight exposure in your sleep. Um, What's just starting to happen in the last year is that this data can flow through my, in my, in my case, my Apple health kit on my Apple phone into my electronic medical record at Stanford where my physician can start to see that embedded into the EMR. But right now, he may have 2,000 patients. He doesn't want to log in to look at everyone's steps on blood pressure and other data. We need to have the AI machine learning sift through that information and present to, to the doctor the, the five patients in his practice who may not he may need to call and bring in today based on their blood pressure, their sleep data, maybe the respiratory rate picked up by their mattress. So today we have a lot of sensors. This Internet of Things is blending into the Internet of Medical and Health Things, but still the dots aren't really connected. There's not a lot of interoperability, and the poor clinician doesn't want to see more raw data. It needs to be synthesized, so uh, it's actually useful in a timely way. And that the clinician is rewarded for doing this. Can they bill for doing an e-visit, for looking at the data and as Sherry has mentioned, I think the role of the physician is key. We're not going to get replaced by AI, but it's going to augment our skills and enable us hopefully to be much more proactive with our patients from keeping them healthy to picking up disease earlier and then managing chronic diseases in smarter uh, evidence-based and feedback loop ways. Excellent. So, yes, yeah, so, so, just, uh, so your question was uh, how should it be presented to a physician in the clinical context, right? Um, I think we already see some small examples of that. I mean, the very basic um, AI in medicine is basically that every um, software checks if there are interactions between medication. We have that around for already a long time and some sort of that is um, AI machine as well. Um, the, the, the other implication, people, uh, physicians are already working with um, AI in medical imaging. So they get some suggestion what diagnosis is behind a CT image or some sort of. So, But we will see more and more um, AI that suggests some uh, diseases. And I think we have to make sure it's less about how this data is presented and how um, the pos possible diagnosis is presented, but education physicians about what the limitation maybe of AI is and that they should always question, um, not maybe always, but in many cases question the background of this because AI is basically based on studies um, on data and it's only as good as the data feed so if we don't have good study data or if um, the angle of research changes also the recommendations um, can be false you made my computer science background heart sing because the mantra of garbage in garbage out we need to keep that in mind when we do algorithms in ai yes mm -hmm. and to that point what's i think exciting about this age is hopefully the future of healthcare and how we practice medicine isn't going to be evidence-based, meaning we look for a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, the patient just like the one I have, which isn't usually your average patient, but much more practice-based medicine. We'll be mining data from all the EPICs and Cerner's and NHS data, say for David, who's got this particular condition with this genotype, um, this looks like it would be the most efficacious therapy, and that we can continue to sort of crowdsource that information. There's still a lot of data blocking. Uh, pharma companies, EMRs, hospitals, academics don't talk to each other, but if we can start to collect information, um, mentioned crowdsourcing earlier that like when we drive with Google Maps and Waze, 
we're used to sharing some private information, our speed and our location. In exchange, we get a map of the traffic and we can adapt our route. What if we could use that same mindset across healthcare and that the information isn't just garbage, but it's synthesized from thousands or millions of people and we have our own sort of healthcare map, a GPS to guide me in my healthcare journey or a patient I may have. And then those maps keep getting refined. And when there's a traffic jam, per se, we can learn to route around them. So um, lots of opportunity to improve the data sources because the way we've collected data, done clinical trials, is set to be is, is set to be uh, to shift dramatically if we leverage some of these tools with the right regulatory reimbursement and other mindsets. But how do you make how do you make this happen? Because even if it can be proven scientifically, medically to work and lead to better outcomes, there are so many entrenched interests, political interests, physician interests, economic interests, insurance interests. How do you, you're you're talking about an overhaul of the way, not only that we practice medicine, but the way we think about it. It seems like an almost impossible task. Well, there's a lot of misaligned incentives in healthcare. There are many healthcare systems. In the U.S., there's hundreds of systems. A Kaiser or a Geisinger can operate differently than a fee-for-service place. So part of it is aligning the incentives uh, as we get, as we're moving from fee-for-service healthcare, at least in the United States, to more value-based care. We're going to be rewarding technologies and systems that give us better outcomes and that we can measure, whether it's keeping someone out of the hospital with heart failure or uh, doing a smarter, earlier job of diagnosing a cancer and then using, like IBM Watson has already done, to help figure out what's the best set of therapies for a particular lung cancer patient, something that no oncologist could synthesize with all the new molecular markers and uh, different uh, combinations of drug therapies. So um, we have to start aligning the interest. It's not going to happen everywhere in some systems. Germany, things can happen that can't happen here. NHS has great leverage. Uh, the VA can do things in a smarter way. So we need to align those interests. It's not going to happen at once. Um, so there's an alignment of, so there's a, uh, say, the coincidence of technology on the one hand with all of the, uh, the, the social, the economic, political pressures, constraints, objectives uh, on the other hand. And so where's the, that intersection between the, the technology of AI and the data and these other factors? So, Sherry, I mean, I'd be interested in Germany's perspective, because I think if I'm correct and correct me if I'm wrong, Sherry, you actually have tougher privacy laws than we do in the United States. Is that correct? Yeah, actually, we struggle quite a bit here in, here in Germany to implement uh, new healthcare solutions to implement um, startups really struggle a lot to uh, find new solutions because our not only our data protection rules, but we have many, many laws that um, prohibit innovation here in Europe and especially in Germany. Um, I'm, I, I, I have two kind of mixed feelings about it, that because, of course, I think especially when it comes to AI, especially when it comes to big data, um, data security and high privacy um, laws, are very, very important, but we must ensure at the same time that they don't um, prohibit um, innovation because it's so important to uh, reduce our cost in healthcare. As we all know, um, we are barely able to cover all the rising costs in healthcare right now, especially drug prices and um, the the rising cost for um, people with chronic diseases. So we must find a way to allow innovation at the same time and still protect the individual. And I think especially in AI, one way to do that is to have 
um, transparency, basically. Um, I think companies must um, show what algorithm they use um, on what data the recommendations are based so that we can still afterwards um, check if um, the recommendations are valid, if we might need to change the algorithm or um, all things like that, basically. Yeah. I like, and one of the things I would say from my own experiences uh, as a CIO is you don't want to be top down when you're dealing with many different players. In fact, is exactly what Daniel said is you want to think about what are the incentives that will help encourage people to find their own paths in the direction we want to go. And so if the direction we want to go is holistically treating the patient, making sure it's outcome based and actually trying to make sure that we're thinking about how we make sense of this data overflow, then the question for us is what are the incentives both in the private sector and the public sector that will encourage innovators to move in that direction? I mean, I think this whole value-based uh, approach is going to drive the incentives. If I'm a physician and I'm not paid to see more patients, do more procedures, but to keep you healthier, to clean better outcomes, I'm going to be much more likely to use the AI agent to help me pick the right drug and dose because I'll hopefully get rewarded in some form, whether it's just paying the patient outcomes or a bonus at the end of the year for having patients with good blood pressure control or who've been picked up before they end up needing hospitalization. Um, it may be even in a few years malpractice not to use the AI uh, in doing a diagnostics or therapy. We all know the issues with medical errors, um, some estimate, you know, the equivalent of a 747 crashing every, every week or two. Uh, lots happening in a hospital setting. We still... Um, treat patients based on our old experience or have what journal we, article we just read. And I think uh, as we're incentivized to get better outcomes and rewarded for that in smart ways, um, but financially and otherwise, it's going to drive the adoption of these. Uh, and it's going to be disruptive to certain fields. Um, dermatology, radiology, pathology are all based on pattern recognition. A lot of what a physician does is learn, this is what a sick patient looks like. This is a constellation of symptoms. Um, but we may not catch that zebra or Miss, miss, might miss something, the more we can leverage this and again combine it, not replacing the clinician, but use it in combination can give us uh, hopefully better outcomes and enable a primary care doctor in rural Rwanda using an AI app to do skin exams, pick up early Ebola or other things that might have global health implications as we're all getting more super connected and the world becomes uh, globalized, including with issues that David knows well, bioterrorism. Are there uh, policy or, or let me put it this way, what are the policy implications, uh, you know, there's, there's legal implications, for example, that legal changes that will need to take place to support this. Other types of government policy as well. May I start? So I think um, we have to answer a couple of questions. So how, how do we ensure this quality control we have talked about? Um, to what extent do we want to use AI and am I allowed not to want to use AI um, as a patient? Can I, can I say, I don't want to, to have AI be used in my, in my treatment. So that's a very tough question, right? Because um, maybe the outcome isn't as good and this patient might cost a lot of money to our, our healthcare system. Another important thing is um, who's responsible if something goes wrong, right? If AI makes a recommendation uh, and it's the wrong one, is the physician in the end responsible or the company? So um, I think the only way to answer these tough questions, because most of them are um, also have a very critical ethical background, can only be solved in a, in a public discussion somehow, at least in a discussion where all major stakeholders are involved and bring their 
um, their view into the discussion. Potentially, I don't. I don't know that we can run medicine policy by by voting or debates from folks who oh. may not have a good picture of what practicing medicine looks like or where AI may even be in a couple of years. I mean, we, you know, AI is moving pretty quickly and we often in this exponential age don't appreciate what's going to be here in a couple of years, uh, how powerful that might be. Um, uh, you t- I, I agree. Who's liable for this information? Just like with self-driving cars, eventually someone's going to get hit by one and who, who gets sued? Is it the, the self-driving car software, the, the person who owns the car? Um, there's so much data flowing out. So I'm wearing a little patch right now. I'm trying to do the live demo that's streaming my, um, my vital signs through my smartphone. And I could literally be sending to David and Sherry my, my 24-7 EKG, which you might see here. hope it looks okay. Any cardiologists out there? You look very relaxed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who's liable for uh, looking at that data uh, in real time? You know, what algorithm parses that to say, well, you need some funny rhythms going on here based on not just your EKG, but your, your sleep data and, and beyond. Um, I think we need to be careful about not over- legislating this and, and, and allowing it to sort of have some ability to expand, um, but in balance, you know, with the malpractice laws at the same time. By the so way, I was going to say as a CIO, I love to do experimental pilots. And so my question for both Sherry and Daniel, if you could design an experimental pilot that could be done this year to show people what's going to be possible in this era of patient centric healthcare and AI, what would be the experiment you would design? Well, that I think is coming faster than we think is in this sort of hyper-connected age to, uh, you know, all these wearables are becoming commoditized. It's how we make sense and synthesize the data. So I like to use the example of our modern cars have three or 400 sensors in them. You don't care about any sensor, but kind of the AI and software, it gives you a check engine light when something's off. And hopefully that means you're proactive and you take your car to the mechanic before you blow a gasket. Could we start to see some pilot systems which look at your connected home data? through Alexa, through your smart mattress, through your wearables, understanding your omics to give you a kind of a 24-7 surveillance of your digital exhaust and your baseline information to start nudging you in the right direction to get you on a path of better health and wellness or to manage, let's say, expensive patients like type 2 diabetics, which end up costing um, the healthcare systems a lot in terms of morbidity, human human challenge and, and, and suffering as well. So I think um, that might be a little pilot. How can we take the systems medicine and systems biology approach and connect these dots. So we're starting to see some companies do that, like Aravail, founded by Lee Hood, or Human Longevity Incorporated with uh, Craig Venter. I want to remind everybody that you are watching CXO Talk, and we're talking about AI and data in healthcare. And right now, there is a tweet chat going on using the hashtag CXO Talk, and you can ask your questions directly of our truly amazing panelists today. Daniel, I have to ask you, what product is it that you're using that shows your EKG in real time? Oh, this is a, I'm wearing a patch from a company called Vital Connect. It's a little sort of Band-Aid sized element that's uh, disposable. Um, These are moving into the hospitals now to monitor patients who used to not be on monitor beds. I can wear this for about a week. And again, it streams through my smartphone, EKG, temperature, uh, stress level, um, other elements. And, uh, you know, it's an example of an intensive care unit level of streaming data that can come off my body 24-7. How do we, it's a bit of a so what, unless that data can flow, let's say, into my, not just electronic medical record, but smart medical record system, that that can be parsed with machine learning and AI so that we can figure out what what changes there might be evident to be what I like to call predictalytics, predicting I might be heading in in the wrong direction, or it can move me and nudge me back to a good direction. So 
There's several of these types of smart band-aids coming out. So we can start to measure all sorts of things. The challenge is what do we do with the data? Who's liable for it? How do we blend it, put it part of the workflow with the poor overwhelmed clinician who doesn't want some other data flow they can't manage or feels um, uh, liable for? So simply having a, uh, a, a set of products that generate all kinds of data is not useful unless we have that entire chain built in involving the, uh, the, the right data sources, the right software, machine learning AI software to parse through that data in a meaningful way. We have clinicians who know how to use that data, and we have a uh, regulatory and practice environment that accepts the use of these data and that has parsed through the risks that are involved so that it's it's uh, legally safe for physicians to to make use of this data. Well, and, and actually, that's that I was going to ask Sherry, because I know Germany, again, having tougher laws as a CIO, what would be the experiment that you would want to design for medical practice and data outcome? And how would it be different, say, in Germany versus a different company because of the laws? Um, I think the biggest challenge here in Germany is how to prove that um, innovation actually have a big impact on the outcome and to um, fight reservations from our physicians here. Um, not only physicians, to be honest, but uh, from 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 many many Germans. So I think we need. So the thing I hear hear the most, uh, or the um, argument against innovation against AI, um, is most we don't have enough data. So I would like to see an experiment where um, physicians and AI um, try to diagnose something here in Germany and compare it with the physician alone and show what we can already do, how we can already improve the outcome for certain types of patients to show that there's actually a huge impact uh, on innovation in healthcare and uh, a huge possibility to reduce costs for our healthcare system. Excellent. Well, that's starting to happen. I've been involved with the XPRIZE and uh, designing a new XPRIZE, uh, the tri- medical tricorder XPRIZE, which is to build a sort of home diagnostic device that a consumer had blended with AI. This is an example of one medical tricorder that was part of the XPRIZE competition uh, from Scanadu, um, which entered a clinical trial. I think those are closing now. But, you know, just because you can collect this data at home, which used to require to go into a clinic or an ER, an intensive care unit, now that data can go through your phone. AI can start to look at what's Daniel's normal baseline. How is that changing? If I'm getting early signs of an infection, how can this help pick that up? communicate that to a medical team in a smart, proactive way. Um, and so that's, I think, part of this future is, is um, how and where we collect this data, how the consumer or patient is, in, is empowered to own their own healthcare data, share it when they feel like being a data donor. Um, a lot of new things are going to come through these smart sensors and point-of-care lab tests as well, not just, not just vital sense. What do we need to do uh, for, or what do stake? What do the stakeholders need to do? The public sector and the private sector, in order to encourage all of this innovation and create the right type of environment in which it can flourish. <laughs> I'll take one example. I think it often comes down to. Um, financial incentives, right? If you as a patient can pay less for your insurance premium, if you uh, 
uh, agree to go through an AI chatbot before you call the triage line or show up in the ER. Uh, that might encourage some adoption. Um, we just saw in, in San Francisco launched yesterday a new company called Forward, funded by Kleiner Perkins and Google Ventures and Renault Kosla, which is trying to make the clinical practice of the future. I think it's $170 or so a month. You can have unlimited access. And when you go there, they have big touch screens. We can display the data. Apparently, are using AI uh, and machine learning to listen to patients in the, in the clinic and help provide suggestions to the, to the clinical team. So I think we're seeing early evidences of this. And if you can get to that smart concierge type practice at a very low price point, 180 bucks a month for unlimited access, that's going to be disruptive to regular payers, regular uh, hospital systems and physicians and may drive a lot of this adoption, especially when you're seeing you're getting better, smarter care based on your own data, your own omics, uh, your own um, uh, behavioral type, and that the user interface matches you. Another AI element is these smart coaches, because you can diagnose a patient, prescribe them a therapy or other intervention. Half the people don't take the meta intervention. Now we're seeing sort of AI chatbots and uh, coaches that can track you and incentivize and nudge patients, hopefully in a more personalized way that is part of this blend of AI machine learning and user interface that will help drive smarter and better outcomes as well. Um, I can I can only say here in Germany we just have recently started to um, <laughs> potential in e-health and digital health. Um, we just have introduced an e-health law last year, and um, it shows what we basically need because we need incentive, financial incentives, and financial penalties to move a very old sector into into the future and help them to to adapt to these changes because we tried it for a very very long time anybody who listens from germany probably knows how long it took us to um, start with the electronic health records it's it's really a shame so we really need these financial incentives at least in here and we really need politicians who are better informed um, about technology. And I see that there are some discourses starting, so more and more politicians um, try to st talk to young entrepreneurs, start talking to companies, go to the valley, see what's, uh, what's up there. So we're trying to catch up now and hopefully um, we're there soon as well. <laughs> All right, I'll pitch this question to David. You know, uh, you know we have uh, 4G or something now, 5G and 6G are coming, which is going to meet our our smartphones and our wearables and our digital exhaust can be streamed at a hundred times today's rates. They'll be here pretty soon, I think. So we need the FCCs of the world to help enable this data to flow. Will there be a need for separate <laughs> data paths for healthcare data? All these privacy issues are critical. How do we layer things like blockchain on top of this to make data more shareable and safe? Um, where's that heading? Right. Uh, so recognizing I am not a commissioner of the FCC, nor am I congressionally appointed, I can say you're right. 5G and working with industry is around the corner and it's going to be start releasing in stages. 5G is interesting because you can actually do structured data elements within the signal and the message itself. And so you could actually say this part of the signal can be shared for these purposes, or I'm a type of first responder, I'm a type of doctor and things like that. So we can begin to have ad hoc mesh networks. And so that'll be interesting both from a community's perspective as well as from a hospital perspective. How does that include the broader ecosystem of care that includes physicians, also includes first responders that are first at the scene for your health? Maybe there's a burning building and you're unconscious, but your phone is still active. Can they find you so they can bring you to the hospital and things like that? Also, we need to think about 
how we can use this to have smarter transportation of people's data. Because as you know, the data is growing so large. If we were to port that file everywhere you went, that would be voluminous. And so we need to start, like you said, thinking about how do we do informed sharing. I particularly am interested in, and I try to tell people that I try to talk about public service as opposed to just government. I think a lot of the innovation is really going to come from individuals in the public that are caring about this issue, whether they themselves have an affected family member that they want to get better health care for, or they're just passionate about making some innovation in this area, as well as public-private partnerships that are thinking beyond their own bottom line. Uh, I do wonder if the world is changing so quickly that the traditional approaches to top-down addressing of these issues will not succeed. And so the question is, what is an informed approach that does protect the consumer, does protect the industry, but at the same time keeps up with the speed of change that is expected to happen in this area. And I don't have any easy answer other than to say what we did here at the FCC when we had the FCC speed test app is we made it open source. And this was done in late 2013. And you can imagine given the events of late 2013 to say, hi, I'm with the government. Would you like to download an app that'll monitor your broadband connection? That probably wouldn't have been well received except we made it open source you can see by design, we weren't collecting your IP address. And by design, we didn't know who you were in a five mile radius. And so maybe those things that require public trust, we can expose what the algorithm is doing or expose what is being done with the data. So you can see that we're doing privacy by design wherever possible. And then giving you informed choices as to maybe you do wanna share more data because you think it'll help inform the cancer clinical trials that'll make your loved one healthier. Or you may choose not to do that because you value your privacy more than whatever other outcome. So I think we need to rethink how we've done public service in the same time of also thinking about how we address healthcare and other things like this. And so it's going to be a very interesting challenge. And that's where I'm really glad that uh, people both like Daniel and Sherry are leading the way from the physician perspective, because really we've got to let the experts lead the way as to how we address these issues. We, we have just about five minutes left and we began this discussion talking about the disconnected pieces. I think Daniel and Sherry, you uh, said the dots need to be connected. And it seems like this is the fundamental problem hearing you talk because you've got the technology providers, you've got the uh, physicians, there's all the, all of these people working on it. And Daniel, you mentioned earlier that it will ultimately be financial incentives that enable that that the, the chain to be connected, that aligns the regulatory environment and so forth. And so in the last five minutes, I'd like to ask the three of you for your advice, both for the public sector and for the private sector, regarding how do we create the environment where the dots can be connected and we have a, uh, a context to enable this to go forward and be used in practice. What advice do you have? Specific advice. Well, there's some early examples. I was in Washington this summer uh, with Vice President Biden as part of the Cancer Moonshot Summit. And a lot of the focus there is, you know, to do 10 years of progress and five years in cancer, particularly in therapeutics. And a lot of that was aligning the ability to share data and, and, and catalyze that between pharma and academics and uh, hospital systems uh, to speed up IP and intellectual property elements, to speed up the FDA processes for these cancer drugs. So some of the lessons do get driven by policy and, and convening and getting people to agree to to collaborate and connect the dots. Uh, the big HIMSS conference is coming up in, uh, next month where there's still always issues about interoperability. A lot of systems just don't talk to each other. They're not incentivized to, so that can be driven by policy. Um, 
And again, on the, on the smaller scale, every individual can start playing with, you know, little AI chatbots and bring them to their clinician. And clinicians are out there can start to say, what are tools that exist today, even if it's not paid for or always regulated, that I can use to start enhancing my practice or my touch points with my, my patients. So not waiting for the future to arrive. Because again, the future's already here, not just evenly distributed, a famous quote. And it's up to us to not just predict the future, but to create it using some of these new tools and to catalyze that you know, differently in Berlin, which is an amazing startup culture in Silicon Valley. And then, in, you know, other parts of the world, which where everyone isn't wearing an Apple watch and have, you know, a Google glass in their pocket. And we have a question that's related to all of this from uh, Twitter and Joanna Young, who is a very experienced uh, chief information officer herself in higher ed is asking, does the promise of AI include halting or reversing cost escalation. So that obviously is a key part of it. Anybody want to uh, jump in on that before we finish off with with the remainder of the advice? Yeah, I, I think I'd like to take that question. So um, of course, there there is a fear um, that we have increasing drug prices and even more personalized care through AI because every patient get, gets a very, very specific treatment, which is very costly. But AI can help us to reduce costs in many ways, not only by reducing the rate of complications, but by also by helping pharmaceutical companies to reduce the time it costs them to bring a drug to the market. First of all, it, we already have startups working on recommendations for pharmaceutical companies to follow some sort of direction for a new drug. So they don't have to spend that much time to on, on many different types of drugs to see if it works or not. And it also helps, of course, in the end um, to get an FDA approval, for example, because we can use the data, use AI to see if a drug is safe or not. So in the end, I, I strongly believe um, AI will help us to decrease cost in healthcare. And what one as the incentives shift, like for net right, right now in the United States for Medicare, hospitals don't get reimbursed if a heart failure patient comes in back within the first month. Now there's several companies that are setting up sort of that mesh networks in the patient's home to look at their scale, the blood pressure, their activity, and have that sort of uh, early check engine light or, or red, green, blue, red, yellow, green to help identify the folks as they're moving from green to yellow before they get to red. And so we can be much more proactive using this data, using the algorithms to to pick up that digital fingerprint of someone falling off the deep end on heart failure or with mental health issues or emphysema, and that can lower costs. We're picking up someone who's pre-diabetic before they become diabetic and putting them in some of these programs like one from Amada Health, which is sort of a digiceutical social network platform that can turn people around through behavior change and other pieces. So we can definitely lower costs by using the data in smart ways and leading the early uh, signals that can, that can change the course of a, of a disease path. I love this idea of the uh, digital fingerprint and AI being used to interpret that data. We're just about out of time. Uh, uh, Shari, do you want to share your advice for making this all come together? And then David will turn to you. Absolutely. I can only agree with Daniel. The the future won't wait for us. And especially when we're talking about Germany or European countries, um, I hope that we start the discussion, that we start to get informed about these new technologies and start implementing um, new laws that will allow innovation and that uh, prevent uh, the risks that come with it. It's, it's a topic that is not easily touched here in Germany. We 
we some sort of belief by avoiding the topic, we find a solution. But it's not like that we can prevent innovation. So I really hope that the discussion um, yeah, starts now. So I will conclude with three thoughts and enthusiastically agree with both Sherry and Daniel. First, as a CIO, uh, when I arrived, we were spending more than 85% of our budget just to maintain the legacy systems we had. And while we didn't see a budget increase, we were motivated to move to public cloud and new technologies because we could see an efficiency of scale. And so I'm hopeful with AI, even if there's not necessarily you know, overt financial incentives, it could be just a legacy way of doing things is later shown to be so expensive you have to move to it. Two, when we made that move and people thought we were crazy to do it in 2013, 2014, we need safe spaces to experiment. I mean, yes, there's certain parts of medicine that you have to keep, keep going well and keep the trains running on time, but creating those safe spaces will be key to show what's possible to bring everybody else along. And then third, it's gonna take all of us. It's gonna take physicians, it's gonna take IT professionals, it's gonna take the public. Um, this, is, this is a massive endeavor, and so I look forward to seeing what sort of almost ecosystems of thought and action evolve as a result of this. All right. Wow. This uh, has been quite a discussion. You have been watching episode number 213 of CXO Talk, and we've been discussing healthcare and digital data and AI, the regulatory environment, and a lot of other topics. Share this with your friends because embedded, the transcript will be up on the CXO Talk site next week, early next week. And it's, it's a, a rich treasure trove, uh, treasure trove of material. I'd like to thank Daniel Kraft, David Bray, and Shari Langemach for spending time with us. And we'll be back next Tuesday for our next show. And then we'll have a show uh, the following Friday, next Friday as well. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.